0: I'm Andrew Biggers and you're listening to Squawk Talk. My guest today is active Secret Service agent Darren Kinder. While most people remember watching the news coverage during the horrific 9-11 terror attacks, Darren was actually there. In fact, he was helping people in the World Trade Center and would call his wife from the building's lobby just 13 minutes before it collapsed. He received the Secret Service Medal of Valor for heroism, but several years would pass before Darren truly began sharing his account of what happened that dreadful day. After a decade passed, he founded Valiant Ministries, where Darren works as a Christian minister, sharing his remarkable story as an effective means of teaching. Darren's story is nothing short of extraordinary, and I was fortunate enough to hear it firsthand via Zoom, on November 11th, 2020. You've had quite an interesting career and you've got a very moving story. Before diving into that, how has the year treated you?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, it's been a bit of a curveball for everyone, right? Um, Yeah, I've uh, I've been on the road quite a bit being um being that time of year for me for for my job but um been on the road a bit but uh kind of adjusting to a lot of different uh different things like we all are as far as being uh being home a lot and uh having all kinds of different unique circumstances but uh, my family as well i'm a i'm a father of a father of four boys and i've uh, been married for over 20 years so um we haven't killed each other yet so that's great <laughs> and um and we've, we're making all those adjustments like we all are but we're we're, uh, we're healthy, uh, we're relatively happy, and uh, moving forward.
0: Very good to hear. It's interesting, this whole thing with coronavirus and quarantine has kind of been a pretty ingenious social experiment, uh, you know, just putting all these people together in the close confines of their home for extended periods of time, you know, I, I, it has not been that bad at my house uh, back in Dallas, but... You know, moving on from that, uh, I'm happy to hear that your family has been healthy during all of this. Uh, <laughs> what, what What is your current uh, line of work?
1: I'm a special agent with the U.S. Secret Service.
0: Okay. Excellent. Um, and I think...
1: And I have uh, you know, on the side, I have a, I have a speaking ministry. It's called, called the Valiant Ministries.
0: And Valiant Ministries is a little bit more than a side hustle. This is an organization that you have founded and uh, could you tell me a little bit about that uh how you founded it, and where what the mission okay. statement of that is sure.
1: you know, primarily it's a it's a speaking ministry it's a, it's a it's a ministry that i uh, I do and you know like I said, I have a full time job it's very demanding and i have uh a family of six uh, to to lead and uh and uh, live life with so in all of that free time that i have uh, yeah I do this on the uh, on the side but but what it is it's just something the Lord put, Lord put on my heart years ago um it, it's a speaking ministry primarily geared towards men's men men's ministry that kind of thing but uh but also you know for uh, for anyone really and um you know i just i just started sharing a message years ago with a series of messages uh, that the lord put on my heart and um you know at the value of ministries we rally around first corinthians 16 13 and 14 and that is uh, be alert stand firm in the faith be men of courage and be strong let all that you do be done in love. And so, um, you know, we at the Valiant Ministries, what we do is we try to equip, equip, inspire men to, uh, to lead their lives, live lives of, uh, of biblical integrity, courage, and, uh, and biblical compassion. And, and what does that look like in our life? And uh, yes, yeah, so that's where my heart is. Um, and it's, uh, it's always a wild ride. It's fun.
0: Before you actually founded Valiant Ministries, as well as your story, which uh, I'm eager to get to, uh, you worked as a high school teacher, as I understand it. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's right. I, out of college, graduated college in, gosh, 1996, and uh, my first job out of college was a high school history teacher back home in, uh, in Virginia, where I grew up, and um, yeah, I did that for four years. Uh, absolutely loved it. Taught taught world history, U.S. history. I'm a history, uh, you know, there's history geeks. I'm a history super geek. Uh, <laughs> I just uh, I just love it. So I enjoy teaching. Uh, Coaching basketball, it was, it was four really fun, uh, eventful, impactful years of my life. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's I can't believe it's been been that long.
0: How, how does one find themselves in the position to be working as an agent for the Secret Service?
1: Uh, well, you know, we all have our different stories, right? We all have our different ways. Um, I don't know what the percentage of Secret Service agents uh, is. I don't know what the percentage is for, for, for it, but I'd say most, definitely most, over 50% or, you know, former law enforcement of some sort or former military. Um, and then there's a certain percentage of, of other, and I would fall into the other category. Obviously, I just told you I was a teacher, right? Uh, which is not, you know, high school teacher to secret service agent is not uh, your, your typical uh, career track, right? But, um, you know, the, the Lord had, the Lord had a, a, other plans in mind. And, you know, I, I was coming out of uh, college, I intended to go into the military and I could not for, uh, for medical reasons. And uh, I didn't see that one coming, so that was kind of a curveball. So uh, I went to teaching, uh, which was also a passion of mine, so it was great. But um, as I was teaching, as I mentioned, I really enjoyed it. But as I was teaching, I just had this, um, this itch that still needed to be scratched, you know, an itch to serve, uh, uh, an itch to serve, serve my country and serve something greater than myself. And, um, you know, it just would happen that a fellow teacher of mine had a next-door neighbor who was a Secret Service agent. Uh, I met him one day, we struck up a conversation, I asked him about 101 stupid questions, and, uh, and thought about it for, gosh, you know, probably over a year, and probably in my third year of teaching, I said, okay, I'm, we're going to do this, I'm going I'm to go for this, I put in my application and went through that entire process, which took quite a while, and um, next, thing, next thing I know, fast forward a year and a half or so, and, uh, and uh, I was leaving teaching to, to, to pursue this new venture.
0: I hope you'll forgive me for, you know, my following 101 stupid questions, but, uh, (laughs) you know, it's interesting. My grandparents are from Huntington Beach, California, Mm -hmm. and they knew a gentleman who worked as a Secret Service agent. Uh, They actually got to meet Ronald Reagan uh, as a result of that. Yeah. And they, uh, my grandparents moved to Lantana, Texas, which is near Flower Mound, I believe. And they had kind of lost contact over the years with the uh, the secret service agent, his wife. And wouldn't you know it, the house that's just two houses down from their own sells and in moves, uh, the secret service agent, and his wife, and they kind of just rebuild that friendship out of, out of wow. yeah, it it's just, it's pretty bizarre, but uh, he has shared some interesting uh, tidbits of knowledge with me, but um I was put in touch and I should thank Brian Foley for mentioning uh, you and your uh, impressive career as well as, you know, your story.
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Brian Foley's a a good man. Uh, I know he's a, a neighbor of yours and he's, he's one of my best friends and uh, he's a great, he's a great role model for me. So I think of him very highly and very often. Um, sure. Where do you want to, where do you want to jump in? I mean, I don't know how much you're, you have um uh, you have cued in the listeners as to what we're as to what we're talking about, but uh I can only assume, Andrew, we're talking about um my experience on nine eleven in the in the World Trade Center, is that right?
0: That is the one. <laughs>
1: that is the one. Somehow I knew, yeah, yeah. You know, I was um sure, I mean we can walk through that. I can I can I can go blow for blow, but um I really would encourage you just to jump in and, and ask questions as we go or come to a full stop. Um uh, at any point, because it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be a one-way conversation for sure. But um, I was working uh, in New York City. My first, first 10 years of my career were in the New York field office. And uh, our, our office uh, at that time was, was located in, in the World Trade Center. We were in seven World Trade Center. So most people, they think of the World Trade Center, they think of the two towers and, and understandably so, but that was World Trade one and two. And then on the corner of uh, on the, on the corner of each of that complex, each corner was, was world trade three, four, five, and six. And then across, across the street from the North tower was world trade seven. It was the, the third tallest building. I can't remember exactly. I believe it was, you yeah, know, it was about 40 or 50 stories tall. I can't remember exactly, but that's where our office was. And, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was there that day just for another day at work. I just finished working out in the gym in our office, I just finished getting dressed and, uh, and uh and it happened and 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 so begins the story
0: and so you're just you're directly across the street from the site of what would be a historic attack on the united states
1: oh yeah absolutely well i mean when i when uh, i was just getting uh, dressed in the in the gym locker room and they put an announcement on that we all had to evacuate so i didn't know why and i ran up one flight of stairs to um to my desk to to get some gear and i went over to a window i saw people looking out a window and i looked out the window and I was facing south, looking at the North Tower again, maybe, I don't know, 20 yards away, looking up and seeing the, you know, seeing the flames and the smoke pouring out of the, out of the North Tower, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of punched me in the gut because I just knew, I don't know if I just knew in my heart or I knew from my training or whatever, I knew whatever I was looking at was not an accident. Uh, So from, from step one, I'm operating the rest of the day on this is, uh, this is some sort of an attack. Now, I didn't know I had no clue as to the magnitude of that attack, right? But um, but that's what I was thinking. So uh, yeah, I just evacuated evacuated that building with the rest of my with uh, the rest of my colleagues, and we ended up um, going out as a group uh, onto uh, onto Vesey Street. I'll mention some streets here as I'm relaying this story. It Just kind of helps me orientate things in my mind. Uh, the story in my mind. I know it doesn't mean much to most of your listeners, probably probably <laughs> unless familiar with the area, but we all ended up uh, just kind of marshaling on the West Side Highway where a bunch of ambulances and fire trucks were, um, were marshaling to kind of start, start victim collection. They were, they were just bringing in people that were hurt and wounded, and we had these huge first aid kits that we used for our job. We had grabbed a bunch of those, <clears throat> and we just broke open these huge first aid kits. Uh, we call them first aid trauma kits, and uh, we just started jumping in, chipping in um, as a group helping people, um, helping people with, you know, relatively minor injuries. We're talking first responder type training here. You know, most of us agents, all of us agents have first responder, first aid training. Uh, and some of us, you know, have have more sophisticated training than that, not myself. But uh, I remember, you know, it was crazy, Andrew, it was you can imagine. But it got really crazy when I'm, I remember just uh, kind of focused on this woman's arm. It was really badly burned and uh there was a a emt a paramedic there and he was telling me what to do as far as what to put on it and dress it with and then i was wrapping this bandage around her arm when i just heard a massive massive explosion um and obviously what had just happened was the uh the second plane that just hit the south tower and i remember looking up and just seeing this huge fireball and this in debris chunks of airplane obviously and chunks of uh building just just falling Uh, All around us. I mean, we were less than less than 100 yards from the base of that tower, uh, for sure. And uh, the funny thing is, the weird thing is, I should say, is you know, I was so close, and I know that plane came in lower than the first one. Um, I did not hear that that 737. I did not see the 737. I was so focused on this woman's arm. I guess I had tunnel vision, and next thing I know, is a massive explosion and you know, many people would say they, they, they heard the engines and hearing the engines for years would give them trouble and stuff. I never even heard the darn plane, and it was ridiculously low. And at that point, we just all scattered, you know, just debris falling everywhere. And myself and a few other guys that I work with um, kind of found shelter under this, this metal awning of one of the buildings.
0: I've heard people describe the explosion as what they would imagine to be the sound made by a train falling off a cliff. Just mm roaring you know massive wave of you know loudening decibels or so but you know and going back to what you said i was born in 98 so i don't have a clear-cut memory of uh the events but from the numerous people i've talked to there was this it seems like almost a nationwide if not maybe even international level of uncertainty right where it's like and even some media reported this is like oh you know it must have been a lost plane you know, sure. maybe a drunk pilot or something, I'm not sure. But at that point, I mean, and even before then, you said you had a pretty serious feeling that this was intentional.
1: Yeah, you know, just, you know, being a, a student, being being trained the way we were and, and being a student of history, you know, um, I believe it was 1993, you know, the, you know Islamic uh, ex- extremist terrorists had already tried to to take down the World Trade Center, that that was nothing new with the with the first uh, the parking
0: garage, right? With that, parking,
1: yeah, the parking garage bombing that failed, uh, led by uh, Ramsey Youssef. So, um, you know, that was that was always in the forefront of your mind um, that that was a possibility. So when it happened, I guess I shouldn't say I was surprised. I was certainly surprised by the magnitude. Now I should say, um, for a good portion of this story, keep in mind I'm I'm pretty ignorant of the facts uh, as as I'm there. I, I would later be climbing the stairwells of of the North Tower, um, and you know, we'll, we'll get to that later, but I, while I'm doing all that, I still had no idea that two 737s had slammed into these towers. Um, I thought they were bombs. I thought they were maybe small planes. I really actually had no idea what they were. So uh, keep that in mind. As I'm doing a lot of this stuff that we'll, we'll describe later, I'm pretty ignorant of the facts.
0: Ignorance is bliss. What were the emotions uh, street level what, was there panic? Was there, you know, kind of a deliberate, you know, effort across the board to, okay, you know, this is awful, but we got to help these people right yeah. here. Right now.
1: What I remember looking at people, other people was like a shell shock bewilderment, not necessarily a panic, but a shell shock bewilderment. Uh, for me, I'd like to say, uh, you know, my, my, the emotions that you mentioned, the emotions for me were not exactly holy. Uh, I was pretty angry. I, w- I was fired up. Um, because I knew what was going on was was no accident. Uh, I knew that we were being hit, and um, I also knew that I wanted to do something, something small, to kind of help the situation. And so, uh, myself and two other uh, two other agents, um, we came up with the idea, or it really wasn't an idea. Some one of them said, "This other guy said, you know what? We need to go into the into the trade center and help people get out." And so the three of us kind of ditched and dodged across uh, the west side highway and um dodging debris and things of that nature we got into the lobby the mezzanine level of the world trade center and um and started looking for people to help and really odd i mean the sprinklers were going off we were were splashing around in two or three inches of water it's really kind of hard to to imagine um and there was it was chaos but i would say orderly orderly chaos and uh, we were running around just looking and finally, we came upon a stairwell, uh, a stair- one of the stairwells, I don't know which one, to the North Tower. And there was a steady stream of people evacuating out of that stairwell. And we decided as a group, the three of us, we just ran up and we started, um, we started climbing, you know, climbing those stairs. Um, the, the people that were evacuating were relatively calm. Um, it wasn't like a movie, you know, a scene out of a movie where people are going crazy and pushing each other over relatively calm, relatively civil. Um, we started climbing steps. We got about to the 10th or the 11th floor of the North tower. We encountered a woman who was, um, she was just slumped over the, in the corner. She was just sitting there. Uh, she couldn't go any further. She, she was, she was large. She was overweight and she was just physically spent. You could tell. And, um, and people were just passing her by and I, just it just kind of baffled me and and I, I looked at the two guys i was with and i said hey you guys keep going i'm going to grab her and help her get down so they did that they kept climbing and i i, I bent down and i grabbed her arm around me and i, I realized very quickly that i it was a two-man job i couldn't do it myself and i just grabbed a random stranger by the collar literally grabbed him by the collar and said hey you're helping me and uh and we carried this woman down you know the 10 or 11 flights whatever whatever it was and uh, by that time, there was a group of paramedics, um, uh, first responders, there at the base uh, of that stairwell, and we—I handed her off to them, and, and uh, they took her, and then I went back up the back up the stairwell to find, uh, you know, try to regroup with my my coworkers that I had uh, got separated from.
0: Wow. Yeah, I I mean I can't even imagine where my head would be if I was in that building when the impact happened, let alone realizing. I need to go in there and help those who are still in the building. I commend you for that.
1: You- well, well, again, I'll remind you, I didn't really know this. Had I known that two 737s had slammed into those towers, you know, I, I can't say for sure I would have gone in those buildings.
0: There might have been a more rigorous decision-making process.
1: <laughs> right, but I, I do remember, this is the odd part, uh, the, the haunting part kind of. I remember climbing up the steps, and as I'm climbing up and, and people were walking down, uh, I was just saying to people, don't worry, nothing's going to bring these things down. Nothing's going to bring these things down. I remember saying that on repeat several times. Uh, that's how little my situational awareness was at the time.
0: Wow. I would, I would probably share that sentiment. Do you, was it encouraging at all to see, like you mentioned, that there was this one instance of people passing on this woman, but for the most part, people were not pushing each other out of the way in this you know, all out push for survival, but they were doing it in a mutually beneficial way.
1: And especially the, the time between the two collapses, we'll get to that part of the story, saw nothing but people, regular civilians, helping other people out. I mean, it was, uh, you know, from that moment to, geez, you know, the months that would follow, it was all about everyone pitching in and and, and, and doing their part. And um, what I like to say, just doing the next thing. You know, a lot of this story, of just this one extraordinary day, from my personal experience, was just doing the next thing, not having a big plan, not having some grandiose, you know, mission for good, but just, just doing the next thing in front of you and then seeing what the Lord has next. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So as this, you know, to continuing on in the story there, you know, I went up to find my, uh, to find the other two coworkers that I got separated from. And I climbed up to about the 30th floor of the, of the North tower. World we'll trade one. And um, I remember one of the, the door to a hallway being open in the stairwell. So I said, you know, I popped my head in there and I looked down the stairwell stair stairway, the hallway, I should say, excuse me. And uh, just saw, it, it was uh, uh, an image that is burned in my mind and that, you know, haunted me for for, for a while. Uh, and it was just, I looked down the hallway and it was just lined on both sides of the hallway with firefighters um, that were slumped over, taking a break, taking a knee. You could tell they had been in the fight because they were, you know, their faces were black with soot and smoke and that kind of thing. And they were drinking water. You could tell they had been in it. and. Um, You know, it just it it bothers me because I know for a fact um, that, you know, most of those men and women would would, would never make it out. And uh, uh, to see what they were doing uh, and that they were they were resting just to get back in the fight uh, is very inspiring, inspiring to me to this day. So uh, but I asked these guys, a few of them, I said, hey, anybody seen two Secret Service agents running around, you know, kind of half joking? And they said, actually, yeah. (laughs) I said, yeah. He said, yeah, they stopped here for a minute and talked to us. I said, all right, which way did they go? Did they go up? Did they go down? What what did they do? And they didn't have an answer. They're like, hey, I'm not sure where they went. So at that point, I just kind of thought about it for a second. I said, look, there's 110 floors to this this place. Uh, I don't know if they went up, if they went down, if they found another stairwell to go up. I'm not sure. So I decided to go back down. So I climbed 30 floors back down. And I was just going to go outside, uh, outside the complex, and try to rendezvous with 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 my other colleagues. You know, a lot of this, a lot of my story, and a, a lot of uh, something that I try and encourage men to do is to find a find a unit, find a group, um, find a uh, especially um, you know like-minded like-minded believers. You know, find do 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 life in a group, in a unit. Uh, you're so much stronger that way, and you learn so much more that way, and you and you share experiences that way. And, Really, a lot of my day of this day, September 11, 2001, was me trying to find, trying to find my guys, trying to find my colleagues. And sometimes I was successful, sometimes I wasn't. But I go all the way back down, and, and I'm looking um, in. Uh, I'm, I'm in the lobby, and the firefighters are all over the place, and so forth. And I see this may be foreign to you, but I see a payphone. You were born in 1998. I don't know if you know what a payphone is.
0: <laughs> I've seen Hitchcock's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of uh, you,
1: you know your your listeners can can Google image that and see what a payphone was. But um, I see a payphone. And I call my wife. I said I'm going to call my wife because cell phone wasn't working. They were all they were all down. And I say, you know, I'm just going to call her. Tell her I'm okay. I'm in the lobby of the World Trade Trade Center. So again, not the smartest not the smartest move on my part. But I call her. I called her collect, which I know you may not know what that means, but that's a you could you know call win in hunter collect, and they could the other end the people on the other end of the line could, could pay the charges and so forth. And luck, luckily, she she accepted that. So uh, she picks up, and I talked to her. Really really quick conversation. And I said, "Hey, honey, I'm in the lobby of the World Trade Center. I'm, I'm helping people get out. I'm okay. I love you. I w- I will see you soon." She said, "I love you." Boom, and I hung up
0: how did she react to that statement i am i'm in the lobby of the world trade center is she watching the coverage and yeah,
1: she's watching the coverage she can't believe it she's tried to call me my family obviously is back home in virginia and they're watching all the coverage and and they're waiting to hear and they're calling her and you know it's it's chaos and um, so she was just relieved to hear my voice and that i was okay uh, she didn't say anything like, hey, you idiot, what are you doing in the lobby of the World Trade Center? Uh, but I think she was just so glad to hear my voice. And, uh, and I told her, you know, what I was doing and, and I would see her soon. Um, you know, the, the interesting part about this, this, this part of the story is this is my single greatest regret of the day. Was making that phone call. Hmm. Because I had no idea, good intention, right? But I had no idea what I was setting up my wife and the rest of my family for. And that was when I hung up the phone, I decided to walk outside the complex and and try to find a group of my colleagues. She doesn't know that, of course. Now, um, I hang up the phone and I walk outside. Well, 13 minutes later, the South Tower collapses. And I know it was 13 minutes because I had the phone bill from the the collect phone call. So I hang up the phone. I tell her I'm in the lobby. The last thing I said was I'm in the lobby of the World Trade Center. And I hang up the phone and I walk outside, but she doesn't know that. And 13 minutes later, she's watching on TV and she sees the tower collapse. Uh, in that 13 minutes, she had called my parents, my brother. She had called her family and told everyone, hey, I've heard from Darren, here's where he is, blah, blah, blah. And so now they're all watching live. So most people thought I was gone. Um, and she thought I was gone. Um, she just said she just fell to her knees in the living room as, she, as she's watching, as, as anyone who had a loved one there, I'm sure it was.
0: Well, and making it just more all the more painful. The last thing that you told her was, you know, there were words of reassurance that it's fine, sure. things are they're going to be fine.
1: Sure. Because again, I thought things were right. I thought I thought the most uh, kinetic action of the day was over. But uh, I was I was sorely mistaken. So um so yeah so what she didn't know was was that I went outside and I was outside. It was the corner of uh, corner of Church and Vesey Street. And I was sitting there talking to a police officer. I was asking the officer if she had seen any other Secret Service agents, uh, seen them gathering anywhere. And uh, I hear this high-pitched metal-on-metal kind of screeching sound. And I turned to the officer. I said, what is that? She said, I don't know. And just as I looked up, <clears throat> I saw the, the top of the South Tower buckle and begin to collapse. That steel had, had finally given way. And for the uh, for the uh, the first time, it would be a couple times that day. I thought, you know, my first thought in my mind was Andrew, I'm dead. My first thought was game over, because I was crazy close. I was, gosh, 80 yards or less, maybe from the base of that tower, uh, maybe 100 yards. I'm not sure, but I was close, and I was like, man, it's it's over. Luckily, uh, the second thought in my mind, which I believe was the Holy Spirit was run (laughs) and I started running. I was obeying the Holy spirit. Right. And, uh, and I just ran and I started running, um, uh, running uh, East uh, on Bessie street and I just started sprinting. And um, I started hearing the, the pancaking of those floors. Uh, And this, for me, you mentioned a freight train earlier. This was the freight train that, that haunted me for, for a few years. Uh, It was just this pancaking of the floors. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, the world's coming down on me. And so, I'm running across the intersection, I see a fire truck, and for a second I thought to slide under that fire truck like you're sliding in a home plate. Get under there because I knew everything was about to collapse. Right. I took a step in that direction, and then I don't know, I don't know why, I changed direction, I kept one straight. Uh, and now I hear this pancaking, this pancaking and now and now I just hear this roar, this this just this it's hard to describe, like a train, like a freight train. Just this huge rumble getting closer and closer. And uh, I saw this, there's this truck on the side of the road selling coffee and donuts and so forth. I thought for a second to get under that that truck for safety, for shelter. And I took a step in that direction. And then for some reason, I kept going straight. And not just within seconds after that, that huge cloud that we've all seen on TV just kind of took me over. But right as the cloud was taking me over, huge chunks of debris just were started to fall all around me. And, um, and now the cloud takes me and that beautiful, bright blue morning of, of September 11th, just became, you know, day became night. I could not see my own hand in front of my face and this pulverized concrete soot smoked stuff immediately entered my mouth, entered my lungs. I started gasping, uh, but I have to keep running because there's still large things falling all around me. And, uh, so I'm running, I'm tripping, I'm falling. I ran into a parked car. I mean, that's how much I couldn't see. Uh, and, t- and I don't know how much you know, time and space kind of get compressed and, and so forth and all that. I'm not sure how far I ran, but I do know that stuff had stopped falling around me and now I find myself just in darkness. Um, and it's hard to describe, but the, um, that, that huge cloud that, that, that you see in all the footage was just like a massive blanket that suffocated all noise. Uh, and, and all light. It was just black and, and, and quiet. It was really, really eerie. But then I started hearing voices. And I started, uh, you know, hearing voices uh, of people calling out for help, wounded people, crying, crying out. And it was, uh, it was really disturbing.
0: And you can't even see your hand in front of your face, even, let alone one exactly.
1: of these. Exactly. I can't even see my hand in front of my face. But I walk a few more steps and all of a sudden, Andrew, I see the darnest thing. Out of the corner of my left eye, I see sunlight. And I'm like, okay, we'll go to those and go to the light, right? Go to the sunlight. So I, I stumble across the street and I realize once I get over there that I'm looking up a narrow alley, looking north, up a narrow alley. At the other side of that alley, the cloud hadn't gotten to yet was sunlight. And so I'm like, sweet, let's go to the light. So I take a few steps, but then I turn around because those voices just stop me in my track. You know, these people calling out, saying, I I need help, somebody help me, I can't see, I'm hurt, things of that nature. And so uh, I don't know why, but I stood there and uh, I started yelling at the, the top of my voice in this darkness and standing in front of this alley. And I started yelling as loud as I could, You know, follow the sound of my voice, follow the sound of my voice. There's light this way, um, there is, there's sunlight this way, follow my voice, follow, my, I said it on repeat, I may, I may have said it a hundred times. And slowly, so I was trying to be like a, like a beacon, right? Right. Slowly, but surely people started working their way to me and they, and they just, you know, started staggering across the street, coming to you coming to me, bloodied and beaten and just battered. They looked just like I did. And I would just take them and I'd point them up that alley and say, go North, go North, go to the light, go to the light. It was really, really a powerful moment for me because years later, you know, the Lord really put it on my heart of what a beautiful metaphor that is um, as to the Christian walk, uh, as to, our, our, our job as believers to be, as scriptures would say, ambassadors of light in this world is to, is to point people to the light. And that light is, is, is obviously Jesus.
0: And it seems like so, a total parallel.
1: Uh, yeah, but you know what? I'm so, I'm so not smart. It took me about 10 years to see, that, to see that metaphor, right? And the Lord just kind of hit me over the head with it one night, uh, one day, and just said, look, this is, this is part of the message I want you to start sharing with people. Because, Andrew, I didn't share this story with anyone. I may have shared this story, you know, for gosh, for 10 years, there may have been 10 or 12 people that had heard this story, heard this experience because it was just too dark. Didn't want to go there. Uh, About around the 10 year anniversary of 9-11, the Lord put it on my heart to, to start sharing the story. And he's like, and one of the things he said was, Hey, this is a metaphor I want you to use. I want you to challenge people, challenge Christians, challenge men specifically to be the man standing in the alley, pointing people to Jesus to be the man standing in the alley, in the darkness, pointing people, uh, pointing people to the light. And, you know, G, uh, Jesus says in John 8, that I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, John 10, Jesus says, um, but you do not believe because you're not, not of my sheep. But guess what? My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So, you know, I like to take the break to say, look, Ben, Christians, believers, what are you doing in your life right now to point people to the light, to point people to Jesus? The, the scriptures call us an ambassador of light. An ambassador speaks for a higher authority in a foreign land. We are not home. We are living in a foreign land. And we speak, we represent a higher authority, and that's Jesus in this world. And, and we're to, 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 to be the men, to be the women, pointing people to the light, and, you know, I, I can't help but think of, you know, that metaphor continues, right? I can't help but think of the, the condition that these men and women came to me, you know, that day when I'm standing in front of the alley. Now, I'm not thinking any of this. I'm not thinking of this metaphor. I'm not thinking at the time, of course,
0: right? No, I think it's good think it get survive.
1: I'm thinking survive, help people get out of there, right? But uh, I can't help but now think back at the condition in which those people made their way to me, which was beaten, bloodied, battered filthy right and that's the condition in which we come to christ you know you know we we're we're filthy in our own sin um god doesn't say go fix yourself first go fix this problem first and then come to be he says no come to me as you are all who are weak all who are weary come to me as you are and then i'm gonna you know do this do this incredible change in, in, in your life and um that's the condition in which people came to me that day that's the condition in which we we come to christ and then and then he does this miraculous work with a new heart,
0: right? When you were initially, uh, well, even before that, you said you'd only shared it with 10 or 12 people. Sure. From that point, and then realizing that this message, this story could actually prove largely beneficial to people. Mm -hmm. um, Was it painful at all to talk about or to relive that day?
1: You know, that's a good question. Um, Amazingly, it wasn't. What it was, was healing was it? what it was it was therapeutic it was hey I'm going to share with people that I've known for years I had left New York I was I was living in the Dallas Fort Worth area Uh, people people that knew me for years and didn't know that story didn't know that experience and so forth Uh, I thought it would be difficult but you know it's a real Romans 828 moment for me you know Uh, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for the love of God, for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm not making, uh, I'd be sure, I'd I'd be very clear not to make a a grander explanation of 9-11 or the reasons or the, I I don't, I all I can speak about is my personal experience and what the Lord has done with me, through me as a result of that experience on on that day. And um, yeah, so he kind of put that on my heart and he said, I want you to start telling this story as a way to introduce people to me. And it turns out it brings me not sorrow, not pain. It brings me incredible joy.
0: And I'm sure it's some sense of purpose as well. For sure.
1: Because, you know, to fast forward in the, in the story a little bit, at the end of that day and, and, and the weeks that would follow and the months that would follow, you know, I, I was like, hey, God, I get it. Now, I was a believer at the time. Uh, I wasn't as mature in my faith for sure. Uh, but I was like, hey, God, I get it. You have my attention. I'm a good soldier. What do you want me to do with my life? You want me to move somewhere? You want me to change careers? What do you want me to do? And I, Andrew, I prayed that prayer for years. And it wasn't until about 2005 where the Lord spoke to me. I was a, you know, I was a frustrated Christian. I, was, I just felt like I didn't have, like you just mentioned, this purpose, right? And um, I knew I was saved for a reason. I just didn't know why. And I was asking why. And I got, I got nothing but crickets in return until about 2005. And the Lord said to me in a prayer, just let me use you just let me use you. And that was like, he just removed this 800 pound gorilla off my back. And I didn't know what the answer was at that point, but I knew that he was going to use me in some way for his purpose, for his glory. And I just needed to start being obedient that and taking the next step and doing the next thing and see what he would do with it. And then fast forward five more years, right. Uh, to about 2011, 2010, 2011, uh, he started nudging on my heart saying, look, I, I need you to start sharing this story. And um, it started at my my home church, Dallas Bible Church, speaking to a men's uh, at a men's dinner, a men's barbecue, and um, people were floored and inspired by it. And then the pastor asked me to, to to share the experience with the entire congregation a few weeks later, and the Valiant Ministries was born. I was like, oh, people want to hear this, and I can actually I can bring uh, the message of uh, of love. A message of, of the light of Christ. I can bring it to people by way of this story.
0: Was that at all intimidating to you? Uh, his request to say, speak it to the congregation.
1: Um, I guess the answer is supposed to be yes, but it just wasn't. It just felt so right. It just felt so right. I, being a teacher and stuff, I'm I'm used to standing in front of groups and speaking. I, I I enjoy it. I've always enjoyed it. Uh, and he was just bringing all these things together that he had orchestrated in my life to be used for this now this new purpose. And no, nah, man, I was, a, I, was a, I was a man with purpose found. I was ready to roll. And um, it's, been, it's been the joy of a lifetime ever since.
0: The story itself is moving, but what comes after is equally, if not more so. You know, just the fact that some good can, in fact, come out of this nation's, one of this nation's worst days. Um, right. And
1: I, and I would, I'd be, would never say that to someone who lost someone or, I would, you know, like I said, I'm just talking about my own personal Experience and, and what the Lord has done with it as re- as a result of that experience. God's promises are true. That promise of Romans eight twenty eight is true. Sometimes we just need to we just need to remember all of those promises are true.
0: One thing that I've noticed regarding the nine eleven story from other survivors and even you know just stories of survival, people seem to have this guilt, this initial guilt. You know, why was it me? What am I going to do with it? Did you experience that leading up to the realization that this can be purposeful?
1: You know, um, I never suffered from what would commonly be called a survivor's guilt, right? Uh, the, that guilt that you're speaking of, I never really wrestled with that. What I did wrestle with was what I alluded to earlier, which was just the silence that I was, the, the perceived silence I was getting from God as a result of my prayers. I was ready. I was willing. I was able to, to, to do the next thing to, to, to do whatever he wanted me to do with my life and fulfill a calling on my life. I just wasn't getting any response. So I was, I was frustrated and negative and discouraged by all of that, but I never really suffered from that classic because it was never a why me, why did I survive thing? It was, it was more of a, yeah, okay, I get it. It was me. I don't understand it. What do you want me to do now? Yeah.
0: Yeah. That in and of itself is uh... moving going back to where we left off in this story at this point your wife and family are under the impression that you're dead right the cloud has completely consumed you and you are helping people with your voice you know leading them towards the light um what happens when you get out of the cloud
1: yeah well um you know it was so by the time i turned around to go up that alley that that sunlight was gone (laughs) ironically uh the cloud had just kind of, you know, was 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 getting larger, and so I just kind of hung out in that area. Hung out in a little room in the alley for a little bit for that cloud to, to dissipate, and then I went out on the street just to to to, to look for people. And uh, one of the, you know, some of the the, the most disturbing scene, in, in many ways of the day, was that time between the the collapse of the two towers. I was on Broadway. I think I was at Vesey Street and Broadway, um, which is further away from the World Trade Center. And it was just utter madness. Now, earlier it was more orderly. This was, this was chaos. People were walking around. I mean, I, I, I helped pick up a guy who was laying on the street and his femur was sticking out of his leg.
0: Oh, man. I helped
1: pick him up, put him in a, literally put him in a shopping cart that somebody pulled up. And we pushed him down the street, down the sidewalk in a shopping cart and, and, and gave him, you know, took him to an ambulance and, and handed him off. I, I, I mean, one of the worst parts was just watching a man stumble across the street clearing his eyes, and he just got blindsided by an ambulance because the ambulance was rushing to the scene. I mean, it was just awful. just, just Pandemonium. Stuff. Yeah, just just awful stuff. Uh, but in that, I saw people helping. I saw everyone helping. I saw a man, this huge guy with those five-gallon, oh, excuse me, 10-gallon water jugs, you know, that you, that you would find. One on each shoulder, and water just dripping out of it, and people being on their knees, myself included, being on their knees, just getting... Getting all the soot and, and grime out of their eyes, um, and, and getting a drink or, or, or whatever. It was just um, everyone was just. It was it was it was it was chaos. But everyone was helping uh, in, in a way, if they could, if they were able. In that madness, I somehow I don't remember ever making this decision. I, decision I, I end up walking back a few blocks to that intersection of Church and Bessie Street, and I'm standing on the same corner of that same intersection. Uh, when I hear a strange, high-pitched metal-on-metal metal screeching sound, and I'm thinking, "Oh no, I've heard that before. I know what comes next, right? I, <laughs> this thing's about to collapse," and I just start running straight away. This time, I ran north instead of east. And um, again, as I'm running, I got a head start on this one, but I hear that that pancaking again, uh, and I was like, "You got to be kidding me! Here we go again!" And then that roar, that freight train, just kind of roaring behind me. And this time, I was able to turn right. Uh, uh, at a corner and I saw this revolving door sitting there. And I just threw my shoulder into that door and I spun around in the revolving door and fell into the lobby of this thing. And as that cloud went by, and I think I was in a, a lobby of like a, an apartment building or a bank or something. <clears throat> and I hear this voice and I turned around and sure enough, there's two, two other coworkers of mine who were, had just taken shelter in the same lobby. Uh, they were d- two different guys from the guys I was with earlier. Just two other guys who were doing the same thing I was, just trying to do the next thing, trying to help people. Right. And we kind of hung out in that lobby for, I'm going to say, 10 or 15 minutes for that cloud to kind of dissipate a little bit. And then we kind of organized a, a search party and we all went out and um, just started. We, we brought a few, um, you know, unfortunately, we brought a few bodies back and put them in the lobby um, for people to evaluate. I think they were gone, but uh, we just went out and we ended up back at that same intersection, Church and Bessie Street, and that's really where I spent the rest of my day uh, at the complex in that in that intersection. And uh, and there we we commandeered some abandoned NYPD equipment, firefighting type stuff. Uh, we just there was a truck that was open, and we put like you know reflective vest on and, and flashlights and things of that nature, looking for fire extinguishers and stuff. And we're standing there, and Andrew, this is a really interesting. Uh, scene where uh in my mind this is what hell must look like right because everything in this intersection was on fire i mean office paper 200 floors of office space just crashed right office paper was everywhere and it was all on fire um police cars were on fire ambulances were on fire fire trucks were on fire gas tanks were popping off uh it was just utter madness my 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 pants kept catching the bottoms of my pants kept catching on fire uh at the end of the day, my shoes—the soles were kind of melted and malformed. Uh, it was just utter utter madness. And um, there's this one, there's this one fire truck in the intersection that somehow is not damaged, right? And one of the guys I'm with, one of my coworkers, he says, "Hey, we should hook up uh, the hoses to that fire truck and start putting out some of these fires." And I remember honestly thinking to myself, "That's stupid. We don't know anything about that. You know, are you kidding me?" And sure enough, the other guy said something to the effect of, well, you know, I was a volunteer firefighter or or I know how to do this. I know how to hook it up. And I was like, oh, we're serious about this. (laughs) And sure enough, those two guys, they they ran over there. They 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 hook up. uh, They managed to hook up these hoses to this to this uh, to this abandoned fire truck. And we got water going through that thing. And for the next, gosh, it seemed like forever, over an hour or whatever. We're like this amateur hour, three man. Uh, another guy started helping us 4 an amateur firefighting team. And we're kind of started putting out car fires. they like, look, let's just try to, our objective was, was simple. Let's just try to clear this intersection of fire and maybe, you know, emergency vehicles can make their way in here if everything's not burning. So we just started putting out car fires, which is a lot harder than you think, especially when you don't know what you're doing, but we got, we got pretty decent at it. And uh, I remember at one point thinking, it's shameful to think this, but I remember at one point thinking, where are, where are all the firefighters? Like, why are we the ones doing this? And it would just later become really apparent and obvious to me that most of them, you know, were in the towers and they were gone. And it would take a good while for uh, so chaotic and traffic was out of control. Now it would take a while for, you know, firefighting units from all over the city to, to, to make their way in there. Once they did, they came in full force. Right. And uh, I remember at one point looking up and saying, Hey guys, I think we might be in the way. Uh, and we all just stopped what we were doing and we looked around and the, the place was just crawling. This whole intersection was crawling, with, you know, real firefighters and had all these elaborate sh- big hoses and huge hoses. And we just had this one little rinky dink one from uh, and we're like, oh, yeah, maybe we should uh, we should get out of the way.
0: That's got to be uh, such a sight for sore eyes, though, and yeah. <laughs> fired hands managing that hose.
1: Yeah. Right. Again, time gets really distorted. I have no idea how long it seemed, seemed like we were doing it forever. I'm sure we weren't. You know, and it, was, and it was that part of the story where the Lord really just, gosh, almost literally put me on my knees. Because at, once I had a time just to kind of take a deep breath and look around, um, <clears throat> I, I saw that fire truck. Remember early in the story when the first tower was collapsing? I saw that fire truck that I was going to get under, and it was obliterated. It was, it was flattened, like the wheels were out. It was flattened on the ground under rubble. Like if I had gotten under there, I'd been, been gone. And it got me thinking, I went to go find that truck with the coffee cart, the donut cart or whatever. And I went about half block to the east, I couldn't find it. There was so much destruction, I couldn't even find the truck. And so the Lord made it really clear to me, you know, that the Holy Spirit was, was literally guiding my steps and that he had something else planned for me. That would take on, obviously as, as my life would progress, a whole new meaning and understanding. But you know, you know Proverbs 16, nine is very literal for me. Uh, where it says the heart of a man plants his way, but the Lord establishes his steps, and we can make all the plans we want and they may seem like a good idea at the time, but you know the Lord will establish our steps if we're if we're able if we 're willing to stop and get into his word, if we 're willing to stop and prayerfully consider what is next that 's kind of the message i I took from that was um, you know be obedient to the Holy Spirit in the bigger things and not just the immediate steps of life but stages of life and you know you 're College and you got to. We can make all the plans we want, and that's wise and that is good. However, you know what? There may be something different in store for you. We're looking for that fastball, and here comes the curveball. And you got to be ready to adjust. And that's just by being obedient to the Holy Spirit.
0: You you were actually tempted to get under these vehicles, both of which you later found completely, you know, flattened under debris. And at the time, you're like these were just inexplicable. Like you could not explain why you didn't end up getting under that fire truck?
1: I mean, the fire truck is huge. There's literally debris about to fall all over me. It's not a bad idea. No. Right. I mean, it seems reasonable quick thinking even, Hey, let's get under there. But, and I literally took a step in that direction and then just changed and kept going straight. You know, his, his, his providence, his hand was, was on me. And, um, you know, years, years, years later, it's just, uh, it's a humble honor to be used by him. It's it's just to have this hand on me for whatever reason, um, and to go on and then later become a father of four boys, um, and to have a an impactful career, I think, and then an impactful uh, being an impactful messenger for Christ. I you can't script it. You just can't script it
0: this completely changed your worldview right even if you know you because you were a believer prior to that but i mean this just adds a, a level of gratitude for each and every day following
1: absolutely and you know it, it also makes you makes you face and confronting and everyone in the nation especially in that area that tri-state area everyone had to come eye to eye with evil had to come eye to eye with evil see what evil looks like and then a the beautiful part of that story is the way we were able to flip it on its head and and really just the amount of love and compassion that poured out from, from all people, from all different walks of life, from all the different faiths and so forth, poured out love and compassion, uh, after looking evil dead in the eye, um, you don't, you just don't go back from that. You don't go back to, like you said, turns your your worldview on it's ear. That is, so it just drove me, in a, in a larger sense, it drove me back to the word of God. And it drove me back to the one thing that does not change in our culture, the one thing that is not a moving target, the one thing that is stable, that is foundational, that you can build your life on. It made me a man that um, took God and took his word more seriously.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Just the sense of meaning that you must feel being one, you know, fortunate enough to make it out of this hellish situation right Uh, i i mean i i can't i can't imagine just looking back at it because i mean what from what you've told me it's just it's completely empowering have you talked with other people that have survived as well
1: you know i largely i haven't um i had a a group of people that we met maybe once or twice immediately afterwards a lot of coworkers that were that were there (laughs) and so forth um and everyone there would share their story as to you know, I've worked for these people for many years. Um, we would share our stories and stuff, but I, I I didn't really get involved and maybe it was intentional. I'm not sure. Maybe I just didn't get involved with like survivor groups or survival issues or anything like that. Um, and then I just, by chance, there's a guy who lives in the DFW area and he he and I, our stories, our our 911 are, are stories are very similar. What God did with us as a result of it is, is actually quite different. And I met, uh, I, I was linked up with him through our friend of a friend, and we met for lunch one day, and uh, it was the first time, and we're talking 10 years later, Andrew, it was the first time I sat down with someone I didn't previously know, who was a 9-11 survivor, and we shared our stories, and it was fascinating, it was fascinating, it was amazing, and what God did with him as a result of his story, was within weeks, he had quit his big Wall, Wall Street job, and he was an evangelist, and he was he was preaching God's word, whoever would have him, would, would ever visit, like, Like God used him right away. Right. You know, and he had a different plan for me. He said, I'm going to let you sit for 10 years and figure this out. And then I'm going to use you. It was just really beautiful to see how, see how he works.
0: Yeah. I don't know what sounds more out of the ordinary teacher turned secret service agent or wall street broker turned evangelist.
1: (laughs) Right, Uh, God is a God of miracles.
0: (laughs) That is, that is something. Wow.
1: Yeah. He's a fascinating guy too.
0: Well, uh, so obviously, you go home at some point. Yeah. What is that like?
1: Yeah, well, uh, in that firefighting mode, uh, I found a firefighter who had actually a cell phone that was working. So I was able to call home about, I'm guessing, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So remember, this all kicked off at like 8.46 a.m. Right. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I called, and my wife wasn't there. I I left a message for her on an answering machine left her a message. And what I didn't, I would later find out she had taken a walk. She couldn't be in the apartment anymore. She had taken a walk, walked down to the pier. We lived in Hoboken, New Jersey, right across the river uh, from, from literally from lower Manhattan. And she walked down to the pier, walked out on the pier and looked at the rubble burn and was trying to figure out what she was going to do with the rest of her life. And then she comes home and she gets this message from me. And obviously she was, she was elated, but, um, I would finally, uh, you know, the island, the island of Manhattan was shut down, was locked down. I was finally able to rendezvous, the me and the three or four guys I was with. We were able to rendezvous with a larger group of, of agents. We found out where everyone had kind of restaged, up uh, further up, about 20 blocks north on the West Side Highway. And we were able to uh, get a car, and we we got up there, and I was given, you know, basic, some basic first aid. They looked me over. They gave me a change of clothes. I. Uh, had some oxygen flushed out my eyes and ears and nose and everything. And, uh, but no, you know, no, no significant injuries. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, at that point, in the story is a, is, a, is a point that I like to make that myself and these three guys I was with, we walked into this room and there were a lot of agents there and colleagues and coworkers. And, and, you know, a lot of them looked just like we did. I mean, we looked, we looked like hell. I mean, we just, we had been through this, this fight and, our clothes were tattered, and we just looked, looked all beaten and, and and bruised, right? And uh, But I remember looking across, all the way across the room, and there was a small group of of colleagues that were, um, you know, they were in clean suits. They had perfect hair. They had shiny shoes. And I remember just looking at them across, and I remember their expression to some of us was like, where the, where have you guys been? Like, where the hell have you been? And, of course, Andrew, what am I thinking of myself? Where have you been? Where have you been? <laughs> And um, it wasn't personal. It's not personal to this day, but it just, it just, it just struck me. And I remember looking at some of the guys I was with, and we we're just kind of like shrugging our shoulders with our palms up, saying, "What, what the heck?" So, you know, I like to make the point when I when I when I speak to groups is um, life is life is too short. Um, our days are numbered. Uh, the scriptures say life our life is but a whisper, and uh, And so I like to, to, to challenge believers, especially, especially men. Don't be that guy in the, in the clean suit. Um,
0: I love that. It would be a
1: shame at the end of your days to die in a clean suit, meaning you didn't get dirty in life. You didn't, you didn't get into the muck and the mire and the grime. Your suit may be in tatters. Your shoes may be a little melted. It may not look so pretty, but man, you're doing the Lord's work and you're being used for his purpose For His glory, my gosh! Don't don't end your days on this world in a clean suit.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a life less lived. I keep thinking about that woman, uh, discouraged in the corner, sitting down. Mm -hmm. You know, would she have made it out? I don't know. But because you were willing to get that, you know, your suit dirty, we know that she 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 made it, and that's that's a beautiful thought.
1: And, And you know what? Andrew, I don't know who that woman was. I've never had any contact with her before. I don't, I don't know what kind of life she went on to live, uh, but I was just doing the next thing. I was just doing the, 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 thing, the next thing that was in front of me, right? It wasn't some, some grandiose thing. So if we just pass it by, if we don't get engaged, if we don't engage our culture in a, in a, in a loving, compassionate way, but, but in a way that stands firm, then, uh, then, then our impact is minimized. And in that purpose found... In that purpose, in that griminess, in the grittiness, in getting a few nicks on your face, metaphorically, right? Andrew, what's missed in all that, people are like, oh, that's a great service, and that's a great sacrifice. True, true. But what's missed is there's joy in that. I think we could all use a little contentment and a little joy, right? And that's, you know, it, it just um, it makes me think of the men and women who didn't, you know, who didn't make it the 300 plus firefighters and police officers that, 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 that didn't make it for those of us who did, you know, those, those men and women are heroes. I saw some of them face to face. Those men and women are heroes. Um, But it makes for those of us who were able to to make it out. Well, I'm not going to waste the rest of my days. I'm going to, I'm going to get my suit dirty and see what happens.
0: I think so many people today, especially strive for that sense of purpose that you've derived from the situation. And even just having the mentality of, I'm not going to go through life in a clean suit. I'm not going to just pass through. Mm-hmm. I'm going to continue this, you know, attitude of uh, appreciation and thanks while serving as right. much. As I, can. I, I commend you for that. Right.
1: Well, thank you. But, um, Yeah. And, you know, just, and just to kind of, kind of round out the story as far as the narrative goes, you know, I I would eventually acquire a ride on a, on a, I believe it was a Nassau County police boat, me and a few other agents, we hopped on a police boat and ran got went across the Hudson river because we all lived on one of these two towns uh, on the right there on the river in New Jersey. And so I was led off by the boat at one of the piers and I got off and I, I walked home and, um, I walked up three flights of steps. I lost my keys somewhere and all that. I don't know how, but anyways, knock on the door and my wife, my wife answers. And, um, you know, it's one of the, it's really the only point when I'm telling this story to to groups and so forth that I kind of can't help but get emotional. It was just, just a powerful scene. You know, Uh, I looked like hell. Um, I looked battered and torn and just beaten and just completely filled. She didn't give me the Heisman. She didn't stiff arm me and say, whoa, 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 go clean yourself up first. No, of course not. And that that's not how God does it either.
0: What a shock that would have been.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she, she just hugged me. She, we had this embrace. And when it's the Lord who takes us in, I call that the embrace of grace, right? He takes us as we are in our own filth and our own messiness and starts to make something new right away. And I think that's beautiful. And, uh, But we had our own beautiful moment there. Uh, My my wife and I, she she says we fell down. I don't remember falling down, but she says we fell down. I believe her taking a really, really long shower and and getting cleaned up and just spending the rest of the evening with her, kind of just numb. And um, I give her a lot of credit. She is um, probably the strongest individual I've ever known. And um, she said that night, she said, tomorrow morning when you wake up, you need to write this down. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I just want to forget this. I just want to move on. She's like, no, no, no. You're going to want to memorialize this. You're going to want to remember this. You need to write that down. You need to write this down. And, and I'm so glad that she said that that, that, that she had that wisdom because the next morning I, I, I pulled up the computer and I started typing and I wrote this really long narrative, three, four pages, I don't know, a uh, really long narrative that I break out to this day every now and then and, and kind of read through. and um, And it was great because it helped me Um, you know, years pass, and it helped me keep the facts straight and so forth. I wrote out three or four pages, this long narrative, and now to look back on it, you know, now when I tell this story, when I give this narrative, I can't help but just talk about God and his love as a result of it, you know, through it, through the story. But when I looked at that narrative, when when I read it to this day, I sat down on September 12, 2001, and there's not a stitch, there's not a single word of anything spiritual in that thing. It's just the facts, right? And now, which is great. It's great to have the facts. Now I can't imagine just telling a story just with the facts. I can't imagine it, and that's what the Lord has done with this with this narrative, with this story, over these 20 years.
0: And that's an that's an interesting sentiment as well. Is you know objectivity is it enough? And I would agree in what I'm assuming you would answer to is no, it's not. There is something more to humanity and to what our role in civilization is. Uh, right. And I think you definitely fulfilled, if not exceeded that, uh, on that day. I can, and I'm just, I'm picturing, you know, the, I, I, the visual image, you, you're a very good storyteller, by the way. Um, I've got this visual image of you on this police boat. And just in the background, billows of smoke, I would imagine, could be seen. Sure. You're probably hearing sirens still.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a surreal, uh, I, I don't remember much about that boat ride, to be honest. But I do remember it was just very quiet. Just, very cool. just, a, bun- just a, a bunch of guys, some, some noble, honorable police officers giving us a ride across the river, but a bunch of guys who had just kind of been in the fight and were just, uh, at that point, starting, just starting to reflect on what had just happened. and um, It was just quiet.
0: Just kind of a period of processing. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. so. So you eventually uh, received a Secret Service Medal of Valor. How did that come about?
1: You know, we just, uh, all of us were asked to kind of tell our stories and tell our experiences on that day. So they, they gave us, um, they gave a good number of us, um, you know, that 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 um, that medal, that citation for, you know, for, for serving together that day.
0: At the time, did that mean a great deal to you? I, and I, I say that because, you know, given the sense of purpose that you've expressed uh, that has come from this situation, I would imagine that that means less to you than, the greater message and the greater lessons learned.
1: I mean, it was, it was a nice gesture. I don't want to sound disrespectful to it at all. Um, it's something that I'm proud of. And that years, years later, of course, I can show, um, I can show my children. So that, so that's great. Um, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of an afterthought when it comes to the, the bigger picture for me and, and what's happened in the last 19 or 20 years.
0: What does this say about human nature? Are people, for the most part, good? Are people willing to help uh, each other in times of of need? And I don't know, just from what you've said, it seems like there is some reason to lean that way.
1: For sure, uh, for sure. I, I believe that. I believe that when the, when the going gets tough, that, that people do rally together well. I think you can see in this COVID pandemic, uh, although it's become politicized and it's become kind of, um, kind of a polarizing thing at times. I think most people, especially early on, were just trying to help each other out. Uh, uh, most of uh, most, if not all of my experience of that, of that day, people were helping each other out and then the outpouring of support the weeks. Cause I worked in the area for, for a few weeks after, um, after September 11th, for sure. Everyone just, 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 just chipping in. Um, and you know, in the, in, in, a, in a greater sense, I'm mindful of the, the police officers and the firefighters that over 300 of them that 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 sacrificed that day, that served that day, as they were running in, you know, as everyone else was running out, they were running in, and um, I like to remind people that that heart of service, that dedication to service, to serving the community, to serving the greater good, is alive and well today. That has not changed. Um, it's been a, it's been a rough years, especially for my brothers and sisters in, in law enforcement, but the service, the heart of service, service that, that made all those men and women do those courageous things on that day. And they paid the ultimate sacrifice. That heart is still alive and well today. It has not changed not a bit.
0: And that that's insanely encouraging. And I would say that that, that servitude, that drive can't be bought or taught. It is instinctive to a certain degree.
1: I would, I would agree. And then if you just kind of extrapolate that to the, the men and women of the armed services, um, especially as uh, you know, different military campaigns took off after 9-11, obviously, you know, we saw over a decade of that, right? That kind of service of, a, of an all-volunteer fear, uh, all-volunteer force putting it on the line and, and, and doing what the nation asked it to do. You know, the whole thing is just wrapped it's just oozing service and it's oozing sacrifice. It takes a special uh, man or woman to do that kind of thing. And I'm not and I'm I'm talking of myself, I'm talking about these other folks. And, um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's humbling to be part of that story. It's humbling to uh, be mentioned in the same breath of those men and women, but um, they do it day in and day out. This is one day. I mean, this is, the, the story I just shared is a story of survival. And really, it's just a story of survival. You know, these men and women that we're talking about, they're, they're doing this stuff day in, day out, and they're not getting the recognition. And uh, they deserve our honor and our respect. And, um, but to believers, I would say, you know, if, this, if this story, if you think this, this story is, is, is incredible and stuff, well, it is an incredible story, but it is, at the end of the day, a story of, of, of survival. Each one of us as believers has a story of salvation. That's a story to share. So while this story of survival is, is really fascinating and interesting and everyone wants to hear it, I understand. But we each had a story of salvation that is worth sharing. And it would be a sh- And that's one way to get your suit dirty. It's one way to get a simple way to get your suit dirty. Share your story. Share your story with people and see how God uses that.
0: As a believer, it is a bit discouraging to me to see. Like you mentioned, the virus being overly politicized, and I think both you know both sides have, you know have done their fair share in contributing to that. It's hard for me to imagine this sense of unity that kind of followed 9/11. From what I understand, with you know Giuliani as New York's mayor, right? You know, one of my favorite documentaries is Ken Burns' Baseball, and they show uh, at Fenway Park they're playing New York, New York. And it's just, it's, it's beautiful, but I, I, I'm fearful that, you know, if something as awful as 9-11 were to happen today, would we be able to replicate that mm-hmm. sense of unity?
1: I think the answer is yes. And I, th- I think, I think we all hearken back to if, if you lived through that experience, obviously you were too young, but if you lived through that experience, a lot of times we'll find people saying, you know, I miss those days when we were all together and we were all united and, uh, before and even that eventually took all kinds of political overtones and you know it became divisive in one way or another um but yes i i still think that i think that i still think that ability is there uh i still think that scene or that national scene of of, of being together and being united and in a common cause uh i th- i still think that ability is there I, as i've matured spiritually i've, I've come to put my only true hope in, in, in Christ and Christ alone. And, uh, and I know that peace and real joy and real sustaining contentment only comes through that relationship.
0: I, I agree with you. I think it is possible. And I may, I may even take it a step further and I say, you know, the, the day that that is no longer possible for us to unify and, you know, become one is probably the day that I, I renounce what, you know, little faith I have left in, the. In humanity. How many? How many people would you say you have shared this story with now uh, through your ministry?
1: You know, that's a good question, man. I don't even know. You know, I, I try to say yes as, as often as I can. I have a limited amount of free time, um, but you know, I, I try to say yeah. I mean, I've spoken to, I've spoken to small groups of Boy Scout kids and small groups of high schoolers. I've I've spoken and in groups of, of, of hundreds of, uh, of people and in congregations at conferences and things of that nature. So I, I try to do them all. I try to do big. I try to do small, um, but gosh, I'd be, I don't know. I, th- I think I feel like I'd just be pulling a number uh, out of out of thin air, but um, I mean, it's, it's, it's well over a thousand, but I really don't know. Yeah. I just, I just kind of take what the Lord gives me and, and try to um, try to make the most of every opportunity.
0: Well, Ed, for our listeners, if they want to learn more about your work, where where is a good place for them to look?
1: Sure. Uh, the website is probably best. It's called TheValiantMinistries.com. TheValiantMinistries.com. Uh, they can reach me on email at Darren. Uh, I spell it a little different than everyone. So it's D-A-R-I-N, Darren at TheValiantMinistries.com. And um, yeah, that, that email doesn't go to it doesn't go to a staff or anything it goes, it goes straight to me, it goes straight to my phone. So, uh, right. so I'll get back to you. And I'm, but I'm always looking for, uh, for opportunities to, to share and just uh, interact with people.
0: Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, just, you know, giving up time is one thing, but actually reliving something is, you know, impactful uh, as you have here. It, it, it means a great deal to me. Uh, and I really appreciate you for your service.
1: Oh, thank you. It's uh, like I said. It's a joy to do this. It's a joy to share, and um, you know, it's a it's a humble honor to be used uh, for for His purpose, for His glory. And uh, I appreciate you being willing to to work with me schedule wise, and I appreciate your questions. Uh, some good questions, and, and our time together. It's been a, it's been a blast.
0: Well, I hope you don't mind. I will be using the clean suit, Uh metaphor. That that's use it. Yes, yeah.
1: you gotta use stuff. it. Please. Please, that'd be that'd be great.
0: I love that. Um, Okay, well, Darren, thank you again.
1: You're very welcome.